Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. So I hope you are able to see through today's readings how we will continue on. If you were here last week, we discussed how the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the great fulfillment of the promise given through the prophets to wayward Israel that he would send his spirit to them to dwell in them to cause them to cease their straying. First Peter says, you were constantly straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd of your souls. And so Israel throughout her history was being called to God. He gave her promises. He drew them to himself and then he installed them in the land. He gave them great and wonderful things, great and wonderful promises. And yet after receiving and tasting of the initial goodness, their hearts turned away from God and they turned towards idols. And this meets the Christian life in 
understanding the benefit of what we've been given in Pentecost because the Spirit is given to apply the work of Christ to our lives. Not just an initial forgiveness of sins, but in continuing day-by-day sanctification. When I mean sanctification, I, I do not mean to use just an abstract theological term. I mean to say that sanctification is the process by, one, by which one is set apart to God for a purpose. Holiness is not just the absence of sin as a clean slate, but rather being devoted to a particular purpose, which is to worship and serve the living triune God. And so today, as we look at this this passage in Romans 8, we begin to see, and this matches with the theme of today as Trinity Sunday, how the sending of the Spirit has now enveloped us in the life of the Trinity. That as the sons of God who are, in some sense, the brothers of the Lord Jesus, when he comes out of the grave, he tells Mary Magdalene, go tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. As we have been adopted by the Father and are now in a fraternal bond of love and and joy with Jesus Christ, we also have been given the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit would indwell us. And he would indwell us in such a way as he would help us to see all of our life as lived before the triune God. So today's message is entitled, Thus, it is entitled, Living Before the Triune God. And the reason for this title is to say that I believe Paul's aim is to help us through, through his writings, his aim is to help us understand that we do not live as orphans. We live before and in the presence of the triune God at all times. And because we are now his children, that presence is not a curse to us. It is a blessing to us. And therefore, as we seek to walk out the Christian life, we must do so relying upon the Holy Spirit and the grace which God supplies, not in our own strength. And if this seems like a, a thing that you've heard before, it's, it's an idea that's not new to you, the reason is, is because we constantly struggle with reverting back to our own power and, and tolerating, making peace with indwelling sin. And these verses are given that the believers in Jesus Christ would be greatly aided, that they would not permit and tolerate indwelling sin, but by the Spirit they would put to death that sin. That's a very intentional act. Putting something to death is not happenstance or circumstance. You have to decide to put something to death. And so these things are greatly important to us in our Christian life, and that's why the Lord gives us routine, weekly Lord's Day worship that we would be reminded of these things because we greatly struggle both in zeal and knowledge, but also the, the heart motivation, the affections for Christ by which we must do these things. So I want to look at three things in this passage as I believe Paul has structured this section of his letter. He first describes the cross of Christ being the transformational event by which we are moved from death and into life and given a new hope. And that transformational event then is added to in the sending of the Spirit upon the believer. And the Spirit has a particular work to do. 
When we said in the creed this morning, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, what we mean by that is the Holy Spirit is God and his work is something for which we should give thanks. That's, that's what we do as Christians. We thank God for his grace to us, which comes to us by the Father, by the Son, by the Spirit. Although they are one God, they are different in the work that they do in our lives, in our sanctification and our justification. And so the, the Holy Spirit is honored and thanked because of the great privilege that he has in applying the work of Jesus to us through his indwelling, sanctifying presence. And so we, we want to look at what the Spirit does in our lives and how we are to fight. And then finally, at the end of this passage, I want to see, I want to look at how this Spirit causes us to walk as children and not as orphans. Through the cross of Christ, believers have been delivered from bondage to sin, and that bondage to sin was so convincing or so sure that before that, they were rightly called sinners and were unable to not sin. So the cross of Christ is the means by which people are delivered from love to sin and and inability to not sin, givenness to sin, and are now renewed, recreated. And the cross is sufficient for those things. The blood of Christ not only atones, but it also sets us apart. We are now to walk according to the Spirit as the true sons of God. This is the, this is the life of the Trinity in which we have been, to, to which we have been invited we begin to participate in the Christian life in the experience of the triune God's redemption. And so we do not believe, as some churches teach, it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus, but not in the way that you might think or say it's all about Jesus. Without the cross, we could not have forgiveness of sins. Without the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins could not be applied to us. It is right to honor and glorify the Holy Spirit for the work that he does. So desiring to show this great freedom, that is deliverance from bondage to sin and being set apart to now live to God instead of being dead and being trapped in sin, we are now living to God and have been set free to walk by the power of the Spirit. Paul desires to show this to his readers or hearers in such a way as to motivate them to help them to put to death what is still earthly within them and also cause them to learn how to be desirous to learn how to walk by the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, by the Holy Spirit, is, which is so often used in many good churches, can be nebulous. And so he begins to unpack what he specifically means. This freedom, that is the freedom to live to God and the freedom to not sin, began at the cross and begins to bear fruit in the life of the believer. The atonement is not just for the end of your day or the end of your days at the white, judge, the white throne of judgment. The atonement applies today by the power of the Holy Spirit. It sets one apart not just for forgiveness and cleansing, but for particular service. This is why reading the entire scriptures is so important because the sacrifice of Christ was the capstone on thousands of symbols of what's, what his sacrifice was going to do. 
if you think about the Old Testament, it's very clear that those sacrifices had a two-fold function. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The act of being united to Christ by faith, which is a gift, it's a grace of God, that act positions me in Christ so that when God looks upon my account, he does not see me apart from seeing Christ. It is as if I have been enclosed, and in fact, this happens with Moses. If you remember, Moses is asking God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, there's this little hole, a cleft, a place for you to fit in the rock, and I will come up and cover you so that you do not see my face and be destroyed. This is, this is a symbol of Christ, as it were, that we have hidden in Christ. We have run to Christ, and he's like that strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. That is the Lord Jesus. And so when the Father considers us, he does not consider us any longer apart from being in Christ. That preposition, in Christ, is so vitally important. This idea that it is no longer my life, but it is Christ's life. I have exchanged my life for his. How is there no condemnation? It is not just because of the atoning work of the cross, but also this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. By the words, the law of sin and death, he is not talking exclusively about the law given through Moses. He is not calling that law the law of sin and death, but rather the law of sin and death is much more uh, readily applied to a principle. We talk about the law of gravity. And if you think about it, the law of gravity is not written anywhere. It is just a reality in which we all exist. Time and space are ruled by a principle, and that principle of gravity holds true. Likewise, the law of sin and death is not the law given through Moses, but rather it was the inability for those trapped in sin to do anything other than sin and receive the death which is their just due penalty for their transgressions. So the Spirit now has delivered us from the necessity to sin, we now, because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, for those who are in Christ, we have been delivered from, I have to do that. So Christians who are warring against sin, according to where Paul is going in this passage, may not say, the devil made me do it, or my flesh made me do it. The reason why is because Paul tells them here and earlier in Romans and in every other epistle to put to death the flesh. So, why is there no longer no condemnation? Why is there no longer any condemnation? First, as we mentioned before, Jesus Christ's blood atones for all sins committed, and it atones perfectly and sufficiently. It is not only perfectly applicable to every sin, but it is the only thing which addresses any sins at all. There is nothing in the entire created order, apart from the blood of Jesus shed at the cross, in time, in history, by a true living man who is a perfect substitute for you, which only by faith can be apprehended and applied. Sin, therefore, does not lay any claim on those who are in Jesus Christ. 
If you were here at the Sunday school hour, you heard a message in which a prodigal son was received back to a father and nothing of his transgression was brought up when he returned. That is the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. Forever, completely free, justified, without paying any penalty. Now, that does not necessarily mean that all earthly consequences will be removed from some sins. Believe me, I've learned in my life that earthly consequences are not wiped out necessarily, but sometimes by the blood of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the point is that God wishes to reconcile the world to himself, and so he puts forth Christ as a propitiation for sins, that sinners would come and hear the message of the free offer of forgiveness and put their trust in God's word, the gospel, which says, come, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, turn from your idols to serve the living and the true God. That's the call in the gospel. And so there is no condemnation for believers. But notice Paul does not dwell there, but moves immediately to what that announcement of pardon should begin to do in a believer's life. The second reason is though sin is still present in a believer, the root of sin has been definitively severed. The root of sin has been severed. Every time I go to mow my lawn, I run over this little tiny tree. It's, it's two inches tall, but I, I mow it every week. And guess what happens next week? It comes back because I have not severed the root. I have mo- merely cut off leaves. I've cut off shoots and stems. I have not dealt with the root. Now, let's say, per, just for, for the sake of example, let's say I did go get the root, and I just took my shovel, and I put my shovel in, and I got the root, I cut it off, would that shrivel up the plant immediately? No. The leaves would still be green. The stems would still have, you know, flexibility. The, the vigor of the tree would not be fully dealt with yet, but is the tree dead? Yes. Does it still look alive? Yes. I think this is an appropriate understanding for the indwelling sin in the life of a believer. So before the death of Christ, those who are not in Christ are trapped in sin, but for those who come to Christ, they have been delivered from the indwelling sin which had dominion over them and will no longer have dominion any longer. Those who are united to Christ have been set free from that bondage. If you want a a wonderful place to go to verify what Paul is saying, just compare it with just a chapter or two earlier in Romans 6. Paul is making an argument that they've been set free from that bondage. This transforming purpose was a fundamental goal in the offering up of the Son by the Father. When God purposed to send his son so that he could pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be justified before him and have fellowship with him, a major fundamental reason for that was so that you could begin to do the works of the law. The reason why I said so strongly earlier that the law of sin and death is not the law of Moses is because Paul refers to it again as something that should be adhered to. Does that make sense? We'll see that in the very next verse. 
verse 3, for God has done what the law, that is the law of Moses, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he sinned, he condemned sin in the flesh for this purpose. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see, there is nothing in the law of God which is contrary to the Christian walk. The cultural, cultural prohibitions, such as do not eat this versus that, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and set aside. All of those things which were only types pointing forward to Christ and keeping separate Jew and Gentile for a time were applicable, but no longer after the death of Jesus Christ, those things were fully fulfilled and satisfied. However, that being said, the rest of the New Testament says that the law of God applies to the believer. We, we know this instinctively. We know that we should follow the Ten Commandments. But we often have a theology that isn't quite in unity. We, we often hold ideas that are t- in tension. Um, I'm, I'm failing to remember, but I, I believe it was one of those guys like Chesterton or you know, one of the very quotable people who says, I believe, I believe you know, in 10 impossible things by lunch. The idea is that we have very disparate things that we think about God's ways and God's will, and we do not allow them to come in harmony. But Paul wants you to understand the things which God says no to, you should say no to. That's what he means when he says the righteous requirement of the law. The things that God wants you to do, to say yes to, you should say yes to. Why? Because you'll do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says that the righteous requirement of the law could not be done because it was weakened by the flesh. And as he moves in his argumentation forward, he says, you therefore are not in the flesh. So this is the point, that though God's law could never have been fulfilled by those who were enslaved to sinful flesh, Christ condemns sin in the body so that we might be delivered. There is something wonderfully beautiful about the mystery of God which required Christ to be incarnate, that his sacrifice would not only count for penalties transacted in the body by me as I live as a human, but also that it would deliver me from bondage to the flesh. So, Christ's incarnation, therefore, was not merely to be an Emmanuel, that is, God with us. He was not only to be the mediator, that is, representing us to the Father and representing God to us, but also that he would be a right and just sacrifice, that his sacrifice would be applicable because it was in the like nature. So when you think about this, you might be able, you might be hard-pressed to come up with why is this the case? But throughout our entire world, we have things that are very much like this. If we take out a debt at a bank for $10,000, uh, we can't bring the bank cans of soup to pay the debt. They will not accept, they're, they're not fungible. They can't be transacted with. The, the debt must be paid in a means like the nature of the debt. And that is exactly why Christ comes to be crucified, not only to atone for sin, but that by faith, we would, through the Holy Spirit, not live in ourselves, but live by faith in Christ. That 
It is no longer us living by the flesh, but living by the Spirit. So that sacrifice for sin not only atones for sin, but sets one apart for holy service. This was what I was getting to when I mentioned, if you look at the Old Testament and you look at every sacrifice in the Old Testament, every single sacrifice does not have in view only things which happened in the past. Even the sacrifices of the sin offering and the peace offering, even those do dwell on or primarily concern transgressions that happened in the past. But what is the aim? What is the goal of that sacrifice? That the person could now come into synagogue or into temple or could now come and touch one of the devoted things of God. And in fact, when you look at the devotion of Aaron and his sons, they were sacrificed and atoned for not only their sins, but the sins of the people so that they could come into the temple and not be struck down. Do you see it has both in view present, past, and future? Sacrifice in the scriptures does not merely wipe the slate clean. It sets one apart to be devoted to Yahweh for for spiritual service, for true worship. And so when we think about the cross, when we think about our own lives and coming to Christ and saying, Lord, I love the offer of forgiveness. How do I respond? We respond in this, that we understand his death does not only set us free, but it also sets us apart. We cannot have forgiveness without also wishing to walk in obedience and sanctification. As I said, throughout the scriptures, sacrificial offerings never concern the past alone, but always are future focused. Paul, therefore, desires to show his hearers the impossibility of atonement without corresponding sanctification. You cannot have the slate wiped clean unless you understand that you are to also walk in obedience in the future. He wants to encourage his hearers living in holiness by warning them of the vitality of setting the mind upon the things of the Spirit. When I mean setting the mind on the things of the Spirit, I think I, and I'm hoping Paul, does not mean just thinking about worship songs and Bible verses that are quoted everywhere, uh, even on Facebook or bumper stickers. He doesn't mean a sort of pietistic Um, searching for spiritual things. He means setting your mind on the things that the Spirit has inspired. That is the Word of God. And when I mean not quoting things as little truisms, but actually coming to trust them. There's a difference between an external resolve to fight sin and to read your Bible a few minutes a day, but without the substance of the meat of coming and saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, my life for yours, your life in place of mine, then there is no true walking by the Spirit. The reason I say that is the New Testament is replete with instructions to not walk according to our own strength, but according to the things that the Holy Spirit inspires and gives. So he says in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What is the mind that is set on the things of the flesh? Earlier in this same letter, he describes the deeds of the body as sexual immorality, greeds, passions, lusts, envies, jealousies. At the beginning in Romans 1, he even describes those who have exchanged 
the natural use of women for men. He's talking about those who have given themselves over to ungodly sexual practice. It's not just sex, which often is the greatest rebellion in our culture, but greed, as I mentioned, love of money, envy, being short with other people, keeping long accounts. These are the deeds of the flesh. It's not just sins committed by the body, it's sins committed in the body. It's not this thing where the flesh is the same thing as the body, but rather understanding that the flesh is a word that Paul uses for the old man. That's another phrase that he uses to describe what he means by the flesh. It's not that our bodies are physically bad. Our bodies are tainted by sin. Believe me, I have, at 30, almost 30 years old, I have felt the effects of the fall in various parts of my frame. It is not as if Paul is saying that your body is the problem. He's saying your flesh your sinful corruption, which has been indeed severed, but still appears to be alive. That is the issue. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This, of course, includes prayer, and of course includes worship and weekly Lord's Day celebration and fellowship with believers, but it but it has in mind more than just external participation. It has a reliance. Why does he use set your mind? Because you can go to church and not set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You can worship and clap and dance and praise and not set your mind on the Spirit. The setting of the mind on the Spirit is a renunciation of thinking on your own And instead, you begin to trust and think according to the scriptures. This is what I believe the the greatest focal point of Christian sanctification in these verses is a willingness to receive God's word at face value and to begin to say to God, I want to think the way you think as you show me in your word. I don't understand it necessarily every time, but I want to. And where I'm wrong, Lord, convict me and show me. That's what I think the heart which sets its mind on the things of the Spirit has to say, has to do. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There's a wonderful word for this. The mind that is set on the flesh is autonomous. And autonomous is two words. It's auto, which means self, and nomos, which means law. It means living according to your own dictates, what you think is best, what you think is right. Autonomy is in stark contrast to theonomy. It's God's law. Notice what he says, the mind that's set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Why can't it submit to God's law? Because it doesn't want to submit to God's law. It's not that it's unable in a technical sense. It's not that your mind can't submit to God's law. But when you set your mind upon the things of the flesh, the things of sin, the things of selfish ambition and greed and pride and making a good name for oneself, those things are contrary to God's law. And we need to be delivered from those things. That is what the gospel is all about, is the announcement of pardon and the response in faith 
to that promise and to begin to trust that God is not going to lie to us. Those who are in the flesh, that is to say, those who are operating according to the flesh cannot please God. He doesn't mean those who are in the body cannot please God, but rather those who are operating in the flesh. So our minds, therefore, are shown in these verses to be the primary battleground in which the, the war between flesh and spirit is carried out. He says, if you set your mind on the flesh, you will die, as we're going to get to in a few minutes. But rather, if you set your mind on the spirit, you have life and peace. What I, what I love about these verses is they're so deeply applicable in every single moment of our lives, aren't they? If you've ever tried to war against even a particular sin, let alone all sins that you know about in general, in some sense, you will understand that the only way to put to death the deeds of the body is to have a superior promise from God's word, which is called in Ephesians the sword of the spirit. To put them to death by the spirit means to take God's word at face value, to treasure it, and to wield it against sin. That is the only way by which we walk according to the Spirit. We must, therefore, submit our minds to the Spirit of God as He transforms and renews us. This is why it's so important and vital to honor the Holy Spirit, both in our theology and our corporate, public, and private worship, because without honoring the Holy Spirit, we will easily grieve Him. We will easily quench Him. Unless we understand the vitality of the Spirit's work in our life, we cannot rightly give thanks for Him. And it is very clear throughout the Scriptures that those things which are not given thanks for eventually are removed. When you think about what Jesus did at the feeding of the 5,000, I love John 6. It's one of my favorite places. It might be my favorite chapter in the Bible. It's hard to say. It's foolish to even speak in that way, but... But one of the beautiful things that happens in John 6, and it's easy to miss because John doesn't record it in the telling of the story, but later, when Jesus went to feed the multitudes, he first gave the disciples a command, you give them something to eat. And that command was not rescinded. They said they were unable, and they asked him, he asked them, well, what do you have? Now, I'm paraphrasing, of course. You know the story. But the response was, well, we have five loaves and two fish. And so what did the Lord do? He did not look at the five loaves and two fish and say, this isn't enough. I need at least 10 loaves to do this miracle. <laughs> he took what he had and he gave thanks for it. And so when you think about your own life and you say, well, I don't have the zeal to put this sin to death, you might be answering your own question. The issue is not whether or not you have a lot of knowledge of the word and a lot of promises that you've treasured up. It's are you making a judicious and godly use of what you do have? And are you giving thanks for it? So we give thanks, we honor the Holy Spirit by giving thanks for the deposit which the Father has entrusted to us, and just like the parable of the talents, the deposit which he has entrusted to us, when we use it wisely, we're rewarded with more. That is really the most dangerous thing about the scriptures, is if one learns the scriptures with mind alone and not heart, it becomes a great snare, because you fail to understand that you are gaining knowledge, 
but you're not gaining wisdom for life. So this is what Paul is aiming at. He's aiming at helping his hearers understand that the battleground is their minds, and their minds are not divorced in this sense from their hearts. The mind and the heart go together, scripturally speaking. The Holy Spirit is transforming us in the renewal of, the, of our minds. And in, in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, Paul says we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That is to say that our, our spirits, what we love, what we think about, what we want, must be transformed, and that has to be done by the Holy Spirit. So Paul here clearly warns us against the danger of false assurance. He also wishes here to provide great hope for those who see both deadness in them and signs of life which could only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Remember back to that analogy, I've taken the shovel and I've put it through the root and yet the tree that's above ground still looks quite alive. If you are ever honest with yourself before the Lord concerning remaining sin, there are still signs of death in you. I know there's signs of death in me. And the point is that if one is not understanding the way that the Christian life walks, is walked out, we might be given up to despair. And yet at the same time, Paul is careful to assure them they are not in the flesh. Verse 9 of Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. What he's saying is that those who have the Spirit of God in them have been transformed from those who were in the law of sin and death, trapped under that principle by which they could not not sin, but now they are in the Spirit, although the flesh is still active. The reason I can say that the flesh is still active is because we are told to put it to death. You cannot put to death something that is totally dead, but you can put to death something that has been severed. That is to say, the work of the flesh in the life of the Christian is an ongoing thing. And though it has been severed definitively by the fact that we are new creations, it still likes to rear its ugly head. And therefore, when it does, we are told, put it to death. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. He plainly states that there is something in you which according to Romans 7, dwells in your body, which is still alive, and that is the flesh is still active. However, even though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The great reformer Martin Luther came up with the phrase simultaneously just and sinners. And that came from this very passage. In fact, I believe it was in these verses in his commentary. And that is the right idea of the the life of a believer. We are justified. We are sanctified. We have a glorious destiny, and yet we still have so much ongoing corruption. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is not just a promise for the resurrection at the end of the age. It is giving life to that which needs to be resurrected. 
That's what he's saying. If the spirit which accomplished resurrection dwells in you, he will resurrect you, not just at the end of time, but today by faith and every day as you walk in obedience. So as the spirit of God indwells us, he will cause new life to be manifested in us despite remaining corruption. Why is this so important? It's because so many Christians believe I've always been that way. I've always struggled with that. And they settle and they make compromises with their arch enemy. Paul says that the lusts of the flesh wage war against your souls. There's this notion of kind of like a grist mill. Have you ever seen grain as it's being put through these great millstones? The stones just keep turning whether they have grain going through them or not. And whenever the grain falls, it goes between those stones and they're just pulverized and they're ground down again and again. This is the effect of the flesh when it is not being put to death. It wages war against your souls. Another great theologian of the church, John Owen, when writing his book on the mortification of sin in the life of believers, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. Sin has a way of taking back ground unless we continue to put it to death. We therefore glorify the Holy Spirit, thanking him for purity and new life. Having shown the purpose for Christ's cross as our sanctification, and having shown it being applied by the Holy Spirit, Paul then turns his attention to how we walk out our lives as children of God. Do you see this triune structure to what he's saying? You've been set apart by the death of Christ. The cross has delivered you from bondage to the law of sin and death. And you have been given the Holy Spirit by whom you've not only been sealed, you've been sanctified and through whom you are being set apart all the more to be proved and demonstrated as true sons of the Father. Verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors. Here he says, we do have a debt we have not been completely freed from our previous debt in a way that we've been absolved and can go do whatever we wish. Just as I said, there is no sacrifice without sanctification. That is to say that the atonement of Christ does not apply to us unless it also is being applied in sanctification. So also the great debt by which we've been, of which we've been freed, it is not released because in this sense, we are not our own, but we belong to Jesus Christ. This is what the New City Catechism begins with, and it comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only hope in life and in death? I'm going to get a few words wrong, so, because it's been a while. That we are not our own, but belong both in body and soul, in life and in death to God. That's our hope is we belong to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't see the cross as being purchased by Christ, then you're missing a great aspect of what the Christian gospel is. You were enslaved to sin. You've been redeemed. It is as if you were a prisoner of war and you have remained a prisoner of war. But not in a sense of which you begrudgingly do the dictates of your new king and lord but lovingly do them, who through the the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's what I envision Paul to be saying here is we have an obligation. We have as Christians a responsibility to lovingly do the will of God.
It's kind of like that old adage, uh, I think this is Lewis. I should probably find my quotes a little bit more. But, but there was this man, and his wife was saying, you know, why don't you kiss me? And he says, do I have to kiss you? She says, you do, but not in that way. A kiss is not a kiss if it's forced, right? That's the same thing in play here. Paul is saying we have an obligation, but that obligation is not a begrudging one. We do the will of God from a pure heart. The aim of our faith is love from a pure heart. Verse 13, so for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice there are no caveats in this verse. Paul is not teaching that if you do not continue to be sanctified, you will lose your salvation. He is teaching that those who do not set themselves apart by the Holy Spirit, if you do not put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will perish forever. That is what he is teaching. He's teaching that those who do not desire sanctification are not justified. That is the test. That's why he says, do you not realize the Spirit of God dwells in you unless he doesn't? He's saying that the test of the Spirit truly dwelling in you isn't jumping up and down at a worship conference. It's not reading your Bible every day. It's are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Are you warring against sin? Are you renouncing the gods of your age? Greed, pride, sexual immorality covetousness, unforgiveness. The greatest sin probably in the American culture is unforgiveness. It's hard to really say which is the greatest, but it might be unforgiveness. This is the way in which we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Are we putting to death? That's why he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul's warning here is not to be missed at all. Though sin is still present in a believer, believers must not let sin reign. I want to just turn really quickly. You don't have to go there. I'll read it. In Romans six twelve. let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's why I said the law of sin and death was the law of the inability to not sin, because of this verse, verse 14 of Romans 6. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under the law of sin and death. And you are not under the law of Moses either. We are not trapped under anything anymore. We do have an obligation, though, of course, to live according to the Spirit. Those who live in such a way as to make peace with the flesh so as to obey its promptings to sin will perish. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying that true Christians those who really have the Spirit of God operating within them cannot live their entire lives making peace with their sin. That's what Paul says in these verses. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because as he says in the very next verse, those who kill temptation according to the Spirit done through the Word of God will live forever. 
Eternal life, therefore, is not attained through simple belief apart from sanctification. That is, warring against transgressions and the sins of the flesh. That is what we are, we are commanded to do. Why do I say that? Because that's Paul's whole point. is He's wanting to strip away what the enemy has done in creating false assurance in some professed Christians. They believe that because they simply cling to Christ in some external fashion or proclaim themselves as Christians, that they truly are Christians. Paul warns them saying, if you do not put to death the deeds of the flesh, you are not going to live because you're already headed towards death. That's what he's saying. And the reason he sa- I can say that he says that is it corresponds with the very next verse in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And you can invert that. Those who are not led by the Spirit of God are not the sons of God. Then again, he moves to assure his hearers of their reality with God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What does he mean there? He means the, the subjugation to lifelong slavery which sin had over us before coming to Christ. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Therefore, as sons of God, we do not resort to fear, not even the fear of backsliding. The greatest temptation in listening to the word of God in this point would be for the enemy to come along and try to sow, well, you better try real hard, you might fall away. We do not fear God's will. We do not fear backsliding either. We do not simply think to ourselves, boy, I really need to make sure I'm putting to death the deeds of the flesh, so I'm going to try real hard myself. But rather, we say, God, help me make a good use of the grace that you provide. That's the difference between trusting in this promise, receiving the warning, and believing in its truth. It is to say, it is really possible, unless I do these things according to God's word, that I am not proving to be a true son of God. Therefore, I will never make peace with sin. That's the right response to these promptings to put to death what is earthly within us. Those who trust in God for justification can trust God for sanctification. That's what Paul is saying. If you are truly a son of God, the Spirit of God will give life to your mortal body. So this passage does not just contain warnings, but it also contains great and precious promises. As his children, we joyfully run to him in every moment of need. This is the aspect of a heart which is led by the Spirit, is when in the midst of temptation, and even indeed after simply committing sin, we run to the Father. It's as if we are replaying in some sense that prodigal story over and over again. There's a a wonderful worship song by a a man I've listened to uh, of his music for years and years. He has this fantastic bridge in which he's praising the love of the Father. And it says, you came running down my prodigal road. You came running with a ring and a robe. 
graces the collision on my way back home into the arms of a father who won't let go. That is what Paul is saying. You have not received the spirit of fear to backslide and to turn again to sin and to make peace with indwelling corruption and, and problems of character, but rather you have received the spirit by which you cry out to the father. So, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Earlier I said that putting to death is a very intentional act, and it might also be easily inferred that putting something to death which is in you, in a sense, might hurt. I believe that's what Paul is saying One of the great tests of if you are truly being sanctified is sins which you love are being removed by your saying no to them because of the promises of God, even when it hurts. That's one of the great proofs of sanctification in your life is when you are saying no to sin which you love. As we remember back from ordinary time last year, James taught us clearly that no one sins unless he's enticed. We don't usually have to repent of sins that aren't enticing, right? We repent of the sins which we find enjoyable and delightful and pleasurable. And so that's what Paul is talking about, provided that we suffer with him. And the way that we suffer with him is by putting to death what is in us. Knowing that Christ suffered in our place therefore strengthens us to say that my putting to death of sin is a participation in the sufferings of Christ on the cross for sin. Just as when we remember that there's this aspect of deadness in my life or my character or in a circumstance and we remember to ourselves the reality of the resurrection, God is able to raise me from the dead. And we don't just think about it In the future, we connect it to here, in this moment. I can trust that God will do the right thing because he can raise the dead. And therefore, the resurrection is manifested through my simple trust of the promises of God. That is what it means to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Knowing, therefore, the aim for which God has redeemed us, let us live before the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, walking before him in holiness as children. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your great Holy Spirit, who is such a precious gift, by whom we have been sealed, through whom we have obtained not only new life, not only justification, but also day by day, sanctification, being set apart to worship you in truth, to serve you in holiness. Lord, we ask that as we come to this table, that you would convince us of the promises that We have not been given a spirit of fear, but we've been given the spirit by whom we can cry out to you in our moments of need. We pray, therefore, Father, that you would teach us as your children to run to you and to cry out, Abba, when we need you. Lord, we, we also pray that you would open our eyes to how much that need is every moment and every day. Lord, we thank you for the great promises of your gospel. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we look forward to this season of ordinary time in the next weeks and months. And we ask, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.